of Titus as he has been preaching through the book of Titus. We'll have the scripture reading and then we'll have those points. <laughs> Book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And one other thing, if uh, as an announcement I was asked to announce, is that those who are in the Career Fellowship, if you're interested in joining them, they'll be going out to see Fireproof, a new movie that was uh, put out by the same producers of Facing the Giants, a uh, movie about uh, strengthening one's marriage, and uh, they will be seeing that this Friday evening at the Lincoln Cinemas in downtown Bellevue. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. Paul writes here to Titus, who is a pastor in Crete, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, thank you. That was beautiful, marvelous. Not too many congregations have a harp for special music, so we're certainly blessed and have students to play. So we thank the Lord for you guys. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's once again a pleasure to bring the word to you this morning. And if I may, uh, just build off what Pastor Joe said uh, earlier just about the Harvest Ministry. just want to again personally thank everybody who came out uh, to the uh, Crossroads Retirement Center yesterday. It was just a great time to serve the seniors in our community. And I would really encourage you, just when we have our Harvest Ministry events every few months or so, just uh, get involved with us. It's, it's a great way to shine the, the love of Christ to our community and whatever we're doing, whether it's um, helping people less fortunate do yard work, if it's feeding the homeless, if it's spending time with the seniors in our community. So let me just encourage you to do so. Um, and then my wife, she she's terrified of me mentioning, but she, she wasn't able to make the Harvest Ministry. She went to the, the Shepherding a Child's Heart conference over the weekend and made the 6 o'clock news. She was interviewed with her mom. I told all the students to watch the news, and then at 11 o'clock they had cut her out. <laughs> So they're all, oh, we stayed up late, Pastor James. What were you telling me? So I apologize for that. Although she made the 6 o'clock news, I have it on DVD. And we'll have my folks put it on DVD, rather. And we'll probably be showing it at the next youth fellowship. I'm proud of my wife standing up for God's word in front of this area who seems to be against discipline, against um, raising your kids in a godly way. Well, as we turn to the Word this morning, uh, just to kind of recap for what we've been talking about, we've been in the book of Titus. And over the past year, we've been examining uh, Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was left by Paul on the island of Crete, and his job was to finish establishing the churches there. He was to appoint leaders in every church. He was to instruct the the believers at Crete on what they were to be like. What, What was the church to be like? What does God expect from them? 
At the beginning of chapter 1, he gives the qualifications of what the elders are to be as he appoints elders. He said this is what an elder is to, to look like and he lists the qualifications. Um, and then in chapter 2, as we, we've gotten the last couple times, Paul turns from elders and he gives specific instructions to what the individual believer is to be. Not just what the church leadership is to be, but what is the individual believer to be. And he wrote, in the beginning of chapter 2, he says that old men are to be wise. Old men are to be wise and to be sound in faith and love and in patience. Older women are to, to teach younger women what is good. The older women are to be uh, reverent. And they are to, to teach younger women to love their husbands and to love their children and, and teach them what it means to manage the household. And he instructed young men to have self-control, to overcome their, the worldly desires that they have and be controlled, rule themselves in righteousness and, and live in integrity. And finally, he says, slaves. They, if you are a slave, you are to submit to your master and, and work for him as if you were working for the Lord himself. And in so doing, you will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So essentially, the beginning of chapter 2, Paul tells the church, this is what you're to be like. This is, what you, this, is what you're to be, this is how you're to function. This is how you're to live. And he builds all of these principles upon a foundation. All this culminates in these final five verses of Titus, which we'll look to this morning. All, these, all the reasons why we are to live this way, all the reasons why you, men, women, young and old, are to live this way, are based on a foundation. And the foundation that it's based on is grace. More specifically, God's grace. In the beginning of his book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan tells a story of a man who was greatly troubled. In the early chapters of the book, he, he writes of a man, and he, he writes, Behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, and a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain it, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? Later, speaking of the same man, Bunny writes, Now I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields, and he was, as he was wont, reading in his book, and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out, as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? Again later, he said, I saw also that he looked this way and he looked that way as if he would run. Yet he stood still, as I perceived, because he could not tell which way to go. I look then, and I saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, and he asks, Why dost thou cry? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book of my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. Bunyan, in, in, in writing this, he's, he's describing a man who he names Graceless. This man with this um, troubled and, and um, destitute actions, this, this man who was this great burden on, a, on his back, he names him graceless. And what he's doing is he's describing all who live without the grace of God in their lives, whether they know it or not. The book indeed in his hands was the Bible, and he was reading about what God's Word says for those who don't believe in Him. He started understanding, and this great burden upon his back was sin. And oftentimes people, once they recognize a sin in their life, they, they understand that they have a burden, but oftentimes uh, people don't, and so they don't even realize that there indeed is a burden upon their back. 
And so he names this man graceless. And the, the term grace is often used in our church today. You know, we, we, we use phrases like, by God's grace or by the grace of God. Yet, I think oftentimes the, the true impact of what God's grace is and how it impacts our life is, is misunderstood. It's misunderstood by the individual believer. And I think it's because it's either um, underestimated or not fully realized. They don't understand what grace is. We use that term pretty flippantly, but as we'll see this morning, grace is an amazing thing that God has blessed us with. And so it's to the subject of the works of grace in the the life of a believer, which we'll turn today. But as we begin, let us open in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you, Lord, before your, your holy word. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. Lord, we know that your word is truth. We pray, Lord, that you would be with the hearts of everyone in this room, including mine, that we would live in a way that is pleasing to you. Be with our hearts and our ears this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, after giving instruction about how Christians are supposed to live, he he continues. After, After slaves can adorn the doctrine of God, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The beginning of this passage... uh, Paul uses the word for. And the word for is one of those uh, important key indicators which, uh, when you're studying your Bible, you should always stop and take note. It's an important word because when the writers use the word for, that means that he's about to explain something further. He's about to build off a point. So whatever he just wrote, no matter what book it is, if if you see the word for at the beginning of a paragraph like this, he's continuing on this thought. And to be honest with you, I love when New Testament writers do this. Right? It makes our job easy. Because we're naturally inquisitive. We, even we get all these different commandments from God, but we always naturally want to ask the question, why? Why are we supposed to do this? Right? We're, we're not taught this. You, parents, you understand, you don't teach your kids to ask the question, why? Mom, can I have some more soda? No. Why? You know, Johnny, don't put the, the key near that light socket. Why? Right? It's because the parents know best. Right? And it's because of that question, why, that phrases like, because I'm the mom, that's why, have been invented. I know, I've heard that a few times myself. Not too often. Right? Right? So, so you know, our parents, they have authority, and so they, they give a command, and as children, we should just obey. But naturally, we have this inquisitive nature to, to ask why. And, and God, in His own right, because He's a ruler over us, He could just say, I'm the God, that's why. Right? And, and sometimes he does. As a matter of fact, the, pretty much the entire last five chapters of Job are pretty much God saying, I'm the God, that's why Job. I'm the God, that's why Job. And so he does that at times. But then other times, out of his grace and his love, he gives us more insight. He gives us reasons so that we can understand his word. We can understand why. And so when we see the word for, it's, it's good to stop and pay attention. God is giving us further insight. Essentially, Paul is saying, okay, you want to know why you need to act and live in this way? Young men, old men, young women, young, old women, young women, why do you need to act this way? Well, let me tell you. And he begins and says, God's grace. You want to know why you need to do this? Because of God's grace. 
And so from these few verses this morning, I, I want you to understand four ways that God's grace is manifested in the life of a believer so that you will strive to fulfill your Christian duties. Four ways that God's grace is manifested in the life of a believer so that you will strive to fulfill your Christian duties. The more you learn about God's grace, the more you should be motivated to be obedient to His Word and to honor Him with your life. And as we look to this, let me just give you a definition of grace. It's a term we use all the time, but the the textbook definition of it is the unmerited favor of God towards man. Right? And, or in layman terms, it's essentially receiving something that you don't deserve. Grace is receiving something good, positive, that you don't deserve. That's what grace is. God is giving you something that you didn't earn, you don't deserve on your own, but out of His love, He's giving you something. That's what grace is. And that's opposed to mercy, which is not getting something that you do deserve. So Paul writes and he says, it's because of grace. And he says, for this grace of God has appeared. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. And the word for appeared in the Greek is epiphany. And we pretty much get our English word straight from it. Epiphany. And it essentially means someone or something just popping, you know, appearing out of nowhere, unexpectedly. Right? Like, like, you know, if you're in a pitch dark room and someone pops on the light, it's like the light was an epiphany. Right? And in my mind, I, I like to think of a sunrise. You know, if you've ever went and watched the sunrise and you're, you're waiting for it and it's, it's dark and it's still kind of, you know, the, the horizon's starting to get light and you're watching the horizon, you're watching the horizon and then that moment when the sun pops above, boom, the light comes and you feel its heat and you see its light and you have to turn your eyes away. The sun appears like that. And so, so, so Paul writes that this is how the grace of God had appeared. And how has it appeared? He writes, it has appeared through Christ. God's grace has appeared to us through Christ. In the beginning of his gospel, John, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. of, Of Christ, he writes, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see that God's grace has appeared to us through Christ. Now, how does the appearing of Christ represent grace? Well, Paul tells us. He continues on. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the first way that God's grace is manifested in the life of a believer is that God's grace has brought you salvation. God's grace has brought you salvation. He's brought you the forgiveness of sins. Right? We didn't deserve that. He's brought you hope for a future. He's transformed your life. He's brought you the forgiveness of sins and salvation. Because in essence, all this instruction, all this understanding is worthless if you're not saved. It's meaningless. Right? If, if God gave us all these commandments that you need to live and walk and, and uh, interact in this way, but we were all going to perish because of our sin, then what good is that? All this instruction is worthless if we didn't have salvation. And in the same way, all this instruction is worthless if you yourself are not saved. Doing good is worthless if you're not saved. Many people do good things, right? Doctors, um, caretakers, teachers. They do good things. 
But it's God who defines what is good and what is acceptable in His sight. Man was in a very difficult situation after the fall. After Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the situation was bleak. No matter what they did, no matter how good they lived after that, they were still condemned to go to hell because of their sin. Because of their sin. Because of your sin, you cannot earn your way to heaven. It's impossible. Galatians 2.16 says, By the works of the law, no one can be justified. You can't do it. It's impossible. By our works alone, we would all be condemned. But according to God's grace and the appearing of Christ, salvation has come to those who have faith in Him. That's the first and foremost aspect of grace manifested in our lives. God has seen it fit to, despite our sin, to bring salvation, to make, it, make a way so that we can have a relationship with Him in heaven. Man, that is grace. But it hinges upon being saved. Flip with me to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the importance of faith. Salvation has come, but it it cannot come through works. It must come through faith. And in Hebrews 11, verse 6, the writer writes, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. At the beginning of this chapter in Titus, God is giving us instructions how to function, how to work as a church so that we might glorify Him and please Him. But then Scripture makes it clear that if you don't have faith in Him, it's impossible to please Him. It's impossible. Because those people who are doing good works, those doctors, teachers, care workers, in the end they're doing good in the eyes of man, but ultimately it's to glorify self. It's to feel good about self. It's to promote self. To do their part in society. But it's not to honor God. Scripture makes it clear that apart from faith, you cannot please God. And it's important to understand this, to comprehend grace. Because many of you can remember what your life was like before you were saved. What were your driving motivations? What did you live for? Did you live for money? Did you live for pleasures? Did you think you could earn your way? And that point where, you know, you you finally got saved, you look back and you think, Wow, Lord, I was so on the wrong path. I thought I was doing good for myself, but I look back now and if it wasn't for your grace, I was on a path of destruction. I had a burden on my back. By no merit of your own, He he forgave you and granted you life. That which was impossible was made possible by the appearing of Christ. And that is why we should strive to fill our Christian duties because He has given us new life. He's given us the true purpose to live. He has given us the ability to please Him by bringing us salvation through faith in Christ. And in speaking of Christ, Paul writes, flipping down just to back to Titus 2 in, in verse 14. In speaking of Christ, he says that He gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify Himself, a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. He came, and He came with a purpose, to redeem us. The word redeem means to, to buy back or to purchase back. 
And what did He purchase us back from? From unrighteousness, our sin. We, we were condemned to die because God says, you know, the wages of sin is death. So He bought you back, and because He bought you back, now it says that you are His own possession. He owns you. And He bought you back with a purpose. He now possesses you, and then He says, He bought you back, why? To purify you. To purify you and to become a people who are zealous for good works. This is the main thrust of everything that Paul's saying. You are to, all people in the church, young and old, male or female, you are to live in this way because Christ has bought you so that you would be a people who are zealous for good works. That's how the world's going to know that you are a possession of Christ. If you're zealous for good works. The word zealous isn't just uh, do good if you happen to come across it. Right? Do good if you happen to see a, a, an old lady stranded on the street corner and, okay, I'll help her walk across the street and I've done my good deed for the day. No, the, the idea of being zealous is that you're, you're pursuing it. You're looking for ways to do good. And Christ has come down and redeemed you for this purpose. Let that motivate you, church. You now can please God. He's brought you salvation and forgiveness of sins. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Salvation for all people. The the term all people here does not mean that, that when Christ came, His grace gave salvation to all people. It means that salvation is open to all people. Right? To, to the Jew, to the Greek. It doesn't matter. God is not showing partiality. Salvation is open to all people. And this makes sense because he, he just, in the beginning of chapter 2, he just talked about everybody. Young or old, male and female. It doesn't matter who you are. You have to fall in one of those categories. Two of those categories, actually. So salvation is available for all people. You no longer have to have salvation through Israel or to become a Jew. Now, just by faith in Christ, you can obtain forgiveness of sins and salvation. And so you should fulfill your Christian duties out of thanksgiving, out of joy. And you should desire to serve the one who gave his life to save you. So the first reason why God, how God's grace is manifested in your life is that he's provided you with salvation. If you are a believer. And the second is that God's grace gives power over sin. If you are a believer, God's grace gives you power, gives you victory over sin. Continue along in verse 12. It's the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. God's grace is training you to renounce, to deny sin, ungodliness, your, your passions for the world. The word for training in Greek, it's, it, it's, it, it's used of a tutor, uh, of someone who would be tutoring a child. So it gives the idea of, of not just strict and harsh teaching, but a nourishing and, and taking step by step and, and, and showing you how to do things right. It's the whole idea of, of the ability to put off sin which Paul talks about throughout his epistles. The idea of ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is just any irreverent behavior, something that's dishonoring to God. Worldly passions is, a worldly passion is essentially something that you do just to gratify yourself. Selfish gratification lusts. But God's grace has given us the ability to, to not do that. He's, he's training us to be able to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. And how does God's grace train you? 
Well, as we just talked about, He trains us through the life and teachings of Christ. Christ is the, the perfect example of how to do something. You want to know how to, to uh, deny yourself? You want to know how to overcome the temptation to sin? You want to know how, what it means to, to be patient? Well, you look to Christ. God is providing you the, the stencil on what to follow. This makes you think of like one of those um, golfing videos, like golfing instruction videos that you can see on TV. You know, you, you put the thing in and you have like the, the golf expert who's got that perfect swing. Right? And so he swings and then usually the first thing they, they tell you, they, they start is by telling you what not to do. Right? Which makes sense. I mean, you've seen him. I, look, I've golfed in the LHBC golf tournament and some of the swings out there are, you know, not that mine's great, but, you know, we do a lot of wrong things. My team did not win, so I'm no one to talk, I guess. But, but you know, golf swings, they vary, but if you want to do it right, you have to do the basic mechanics. And so, usually these golf videos, they, they tell you on what not to do. The first thing is like, well, you know, you've got to keep your, keep your elbows straight, you know, don't, don't bend it, keep your hips right. And so, as you look at this video and you, you watch the, the expert swing, you try to model your own swing after it. And the more you do it, the closer it gets. In a sense, that, that works in a way, with our life in Christ. That's how Christ trains us. We watch His life and mimic our life after His. And the more we do that, the more we have the ability to deny our worldly passions. To not be ungodly anymore. And this is God's grace, church. How else would we know if God didn't show us? We kept failing and failing, and God, out of His grace, sent His Son to show us how to live in righteousness and in truth. The scripture says that it's training us to deny or to say no, right? It gives the idea of this constant battle. You're going to have to, you know, you don't have to tell yourself, okay, I need to start sinning. It just comes natural. And so the battle for all people, believers and non-believers, is in a sense battling with your sin. And as a Christian, we need to, to battle and say no, to deny it, to renounce it, to walk away from it. It's like being lazy, right? You don't have to train yourself to be lazy, Typically, you're just naturally lazy. But then when one day, that finally, when, when it's the last straw, you know, you, you walk in the store and some kids are making fun of you, calling you a fatty McButterpants or whatever it is, and you're finally driven to get back into shape, well, what do you do? You have to start denying your laziness. Right? You've got to get up and go to the gym. You've had a long, hard day. You're tired. You want to be lazy, but you've got to deny that, and you go to the gym. You drive by Dairy Queen and they say, buy one, get one free large blizzard. You want to stop in, pick yourself up four or six. Right? You have to stop. You have to deny that urge, right? But the more you do it, the more you deny that urge, the more you start working out and training and going to the gym, then denying the, the desire to be lazy becomes easier and easier. Being lazy has stopped becoming your lifestyle and now getting into shape and training has become your lifestyle. And that's what it's like when you're a Christian. When you first become a Christian, uh, many of your old habits, they, they die hard. They're hard to stop. But as you read and apply God's Word, you start to grow and apply them to your life and they become easier and easier and you grow. Which is another reason why I, I need to encourage you all to read your Bible. Right? Don't just read it and say, okay, I've done my quiet times for the day. I can stop. Read it with a purpose. How can I grow? How can my life change according to Christ? And when you do that, you will grow and you will become like Him and you will learn to overcome 
ungodliness and worldly passions, worldly desires. In addition to Christ, God's grace is manifested through the Holy Spirit. Christ has come down and, and lived a life that is an example to us, but also He's sent a helper, a comforter, who indwells the life of a believer. If you've confessed Christ as Lord of your life, you've repented of your sins, God says that He sends His Spirit to dwell within you. This is the most transparent way of God's grace in your life. He transforms your heart. You now have the ability that when you're struggling with sin and and you don't want, you can pray to God, help me, give me the strength, take away these desires, and you will have it. I mean, God's not going to do the work for you. Makes me think of like a a parent teaching their kid how to ride a bike. Okay? You got kind of like the the dad or mom holding the back seat and they they start running and, and they're guiding you, right? But, you know, if if you want to actually be successful, the kid has to kind of pedal. Right? He's got to do the work in pedaling. He's got to, to do the work in steering. But the parent is there to help guide, to make sure that we don't you know, fall down, or if we do, uh, we don't fall down too hard, or we don't just go cruising off into the middle of a, a busy road. Right? God's grace is there to help us, but we still have to do work. We have to do the job of not just steering into some garbage cans or whatever it is. But the Spirit is there to help us and it takes away our desires to sin because the unbelieving world does not have this the unbelieving world does not have the ability not to sin the Bible says that if you've sinned you are a slave to sin you cannot but help to sin in Romans 5 Paul writes but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. If you're not a Christian, you are a slave to sin. No matter how much good you want to do, you will always sin. You will always sin. Because you're trying to glorify yourself and you're not living for God. But through Christ, through our salvation, God has released us from our bonds, our slavery of sin. And now we can please Him through good works, through our faith. And now we can choose not to sin. We can choose. You come to that crossroads and you've all been there where it's like, I know if I do this I would sin and I know I should stop. And then you have to make that choice. But God has given you the power to not sin and to become more like His Son. Thirdly, first God has given us grace in salvation. Then God's grace has provided us a way to deny sinful lifestyle and thirdly God's grace equips us for godliness it's very similar to the second one not only does God's grace give you the ability to deny your sin but it also gives you the ability to live righteously to do godly works we would not be able to do this without God's grace because we've all been in those times where you know what you should do you know what the right thing to do is but you just like ah I don't want to be patient in this time I don't want to be. I don't want to be uh, selfless. I, I, I want my own needs, and we struggle with that. But by God's grace, we have the ability to do what pleases Him. And when you're struggling, you pray to God and ask for His grace. Lord, help me. I want to honor You. The world has no desire of that. But by God's grace and His transforming power of Your Spirit and Your heart, you have the ability to do this. I encourage you do that. Depend on God's grace. God essentially says, look, I I want you to honor me. I want you to honor me, and I'm going to give you the knowledge on how to do it and the tools to do it with. 
going to give you salvation and I'm going to give you the ability to deny yourself and to live in a way that is pleasing to me. And so this should encourage us. All right, thank you, Lord. You've opened my eyes and, you know, it's, it's like a, a carpenter with an apprentice giving him everything he needs. He says, all right, work, do. He should have been encouraged to go and live in a way that's honoring to his master. And Paul, he contrasts two negatives, uh, ungodliness and worldly passions, with three positives. He lists them. Verse 12, he says, Training training us to renounce godliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So he says, and and, and we follow in Christ's example and through the power of the Spirit, he gives us three things that we need to be like. And the first is self-controlled. Now, if you've been here the last few messages, hopefully the idea of being self-controlled is just drilled in your minds. Okay? This is a big aspect of being a Christian, is ruling yourself in righteousness. You're not ruled by sin now, you are to be slaves of Christ, and so you are to rule yourself in righteousness. This is the fifth time in two chapters that you as a believer are commanded to have self-control. The fifth time. So it's important, we should take note of this. Rule yourself in righteousness. So so being self-controlled, that reflects your relationship with yourself. Your actions towards yourself, what you're going to do. The second is your relationship with others. And he he says, live self-controlled and upright or righteous lives. You're to show honesty. You're to show integrity and justice towards others. You know, people are to recognize that you're a Christian, that you have a transformed life. And when you do this, you bring honor to to the name of God. You please Him when you do this. You to rule yourself in righteousness and you to be righteous in front of others so they recognize you. And thirdly, he says you're to be godly. The first is to self, the second is to others, and the third is to God. One commentary wrote, inward, outward, and upward. That's how we're to live. Inward, outward, upward. Be transformed in that way. So we're to live obediently to seek Him. You want a godly, living a godly life is just to seek after God. You know, being like David, the man after God's own heart. Yeah, sure, you know, he, he had his struggles. He had his struggles and sin, but he loved the Lord. He loved His law. He sought Him day and night. And that's what we're to be characterized as. That should motivate you, that desire, to fulfill your duties as a Christian. Because when you do... When you do, you are obeying God. When you do that, you are pleasing Him and being godly. And can you see Paul's flow here? He, he, he's building all this on the grace of God. And he's saying, look, old, young, male and female, you are to do all these different things. Why? Because God has purchased you for a purpose. It's to be zealous for these works. He saved you, and now He's equipped you. Now go. Here's the reason. He's given you everything you need, and that should motivate you. He saved us. He's paid for our sin, something we could not do. Now He calls us to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. But God's grace does not end there. He saved us, given His power over sin, equipped us for godliness, and then fourthly, God's grace provides hope for the future. God's grace provides you with hope for the future. Continuing on, He says, Training us to renounce ungodliness, verse 12, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, I'll be honest with you, you know, life's difficult. Right? 
When you become a Christian, your desire to sin doesn't end. You know? Even in Sunday school, we were talking about how to manage money and, and looking at the markets today. A lot of times, life comes with stress. Jobs are difficult, you know? Having kids is it's not easy. Being married is not always easy, right? But, if that's all there was, then, man, I can see why people would just want to live for the day. But God, out of His grace, has revealed to us that there is a future hope. That all this life is temporary. It is but a vapor. It is here one minute and gone the next. And it comes, it will end at the appearing of our great God and Savior. And this will come in one of two ways. Either one, you die, or two, He comes back. Because in the same way that God says, in the first, this is the same word appearing, in this verse, it's the same that He used earlier. The same way that Christ earlier appeared on this earth when He came, born of a virgin, came to die on the cross, in the same way, He's going to appear again. And with Him, He's going to bring His kingdom. And He's going to reign for eternity. And us with Him, those who believe in Him. What a great hope that is. That this life will end. There will be no more sin. Every tear will be wiped away. And then finally, we'll be glorified and be like Christ and get to see Him face to face and dwell with the living God. What a blessed hope that is. It's like a distance runner, you know. I watch those guys in the Olympics and they're running forever. You know, and the commentaries are like, well, the commentator's like, oh, you can really see the pain setting in now, you know. Just six more miles to go. I'm like, wow. Right? But you know they're feeling pain. But they press on. Why? Because they know that the race isn't forever. It's going to end. And like, like, like Paul says, he, he, he presses on so that he might achieve the prize. If, if you know there's a prize at the end, the temporary pain can, can be endured because you know there's a blessed hope at the end. There is a finish line. And when you cross that finish line at the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, then the pain stops and it's no more. Once that, race, once that runner finishes the race, he never has to run another race if he doesn't want to. The pain will be done. Right? Or it's, it can be like child, childbearing for, for, for ladies. You know, at the, the time, and I can only imagine it's painful and it goes on and on and on, but then once your child is finally born, the thought of all that pain is, is gone for an instant when you finally get to hold your child in your arms. The pain is just temporary, but the joy of the Lord, says the Scriptures, will last forever. And Paul reminds them of what, what their life was like before they got saved. In Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2.12, Paul writes, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Before you were a Christian church, before the, the world now, if, if, you do not, if you don't know Christ, then you have no hope. The best it's ever going to be is now. Can you imagine that? What grace God has given us so that we would know the future hope, that we have no more sin, that we can dwell with Him, that the pain of this life and all its struggles will be put to an end. 
The world has no hope, but by God's grace, church, we have a hope. And we press on. William Wilberforce, the Wilberforce, the writer of Amazing Grace, he understood this. Right? He understood this, that he was just a wretched sinner. And that he had no hope. And finally, when he realized that he could not earn salvation on his own works, and that no matter how wicked he had been, the death of Christ on the cross for his sins could cover all of his sins. And so he wrote that hymn. And it's called Amazing Grace. He finally understood how amazing God's grace was. And at the very end, he, he understood the blessed hope. He said, after all is said and done, when we've been, then, when we've been there 10,000 years, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. We can sing God's praise for eternity. There'll be no more pain, no matter what I've done. Once we get to the glory of God, once we, we see His glory and we're with Him, we can be there 10,000 years praising God, living with hope, living with Him. And after 10,000 years, we'll have another 10,000 more and it will never end. It will never end. Be reminded of God's grace in your life this morning. Be reminded that, that, that He has saved you. He's, he's given you power over sin. He's equipped you to do good works. And then He's given you hope. Saying, live for me while you're on this earth. And when we live for Him, we get treasures in heaven. And when we live for Him, we give Him glory. We give God glory, the one who saved us out of His grace. We didn't deserve it, but He gave us salvation according to His love. Let that motivate you. And that's what Paul's saying. It's because of His grace. It's because of all that He's given us. Let that motivate you to do these works which I've just commanded you and all the other works commanded in Scripture. I just want to take a note because it's upon my heart that if you don't know Christ... You're just like the man graceless. And whether you know it or not, you have this burden upon your back. And that book that says you're condemned to die and judge, you will be judged. Do not think you can earn heaven on your own. Do not think that you can do good on your own. Your sin has separated you from God. And no matter how good you are... Your sin is what keeps you from Him. People often misunderstand this. It's it's not the good that gets you into heaven. It's your sin that keeps you out of it. But even then, God's Word says, if we don't have faith in Christ, it's impossible to please Him. So I charge you this morning, if if you're wavering about your faith in Christ, if if you don't feel like you truly understand, go before Him and pray. And recognize that you can't earn heaven on your own. And if you do know Christ, then rejoice in the grace which He has given you. And let that spur you on to do works. Even the Apostle Paul, when, when he was struggling, he was, doing, he, was, he was doing the work of Christ, and then he came before the Lord and said, Lord, I've got this thorn in the flesh, and it's plaguing me. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. Three times he said, I asked God to remove it. And what did God say? What did He say? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And if it's sufficient for the Apostle Paul, who's just a man, it's sufficient for you too as a believer to do the things which you are called and to live in a way that is honoring and pleasing to him. It is this truth that Paul was telling Titus to proclaim to the churches in Crete. At the end he says, 
Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's because it's truth. And if you felt the transforming power of God in your life, you don't deny this either. Be encouraged by the grace that God has given you in your life and let that spur you on to honor Him in all you do. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, God, with humility, knowing that we neither earn nor deserve salvation, but as you have blessed us with your grace through your Son, we now can live with you in eternity away from sin. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to live in a way that is obedient to your word, in a way that is pleasing to you, Lord so that your light would shine upon us and that the world would know that you live and that we as a church would bring much honor to your name. Father, thank you for all the gifts you've given us through your Son and through your grace. We ask that you would be pleased in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.